may be seated. Good morning, everybody. It is really, really, really good to see you. I'll tell you after that, I just uh, feel like I've kind of forgotten everything. I didn't think I'd get emotional. What an amazing thing. Get all my pieces working here. Well, it's been quite a spring. And uh, just want to thank you for... This is, man, this is tough. Just thank you for praying for our family and, you know... Prayer is an amazing thing, and uh, thank you for lifting Maddie up before our Heavenly Father. Um, you know, and she is, she is at a place where, um, unless she's really tired, you can't even tell she had a massive stroke. It is just an amazing thing, and uh, that's kind of what the doctor's attitude is as well. But we're fine with that. Well, quite a while ago, um, I don't know how I ended up on this text. And the funny thing is, is John ended up on the same text for a conference that he's participating in um, this week. Revelation 2, 1 through 7, it's... You know, it's one of those books that uh, we read and in our course of, you know, if you, if you do something like a read through the Bible in a year sort of plan, it's, it's, it's a book we read, but it's so heavy in imagery, um, uh, it, it's just not an easy read. It's not generally something that is uh, easily applied to our lives, right? Um, and I can tell you, you know, having picked this text up, several months ago and, and for some reason just kind of stuck with me. Um, uh, it's one of the more straightforward portions of Revelation. It, uh, it still is steeped in imagery, but it, uh, it is the opening of the book, which is, when you think of the context, it, it, it just all lets you think in your own time, um, why the Lord chose to put these letters to the churches in, in the front of this uh, book that portends to tell the, the days ahead for the church till the time when the Lord returns. But uh, there is much for us here, and, and, and we're going to be focusing strictly on the first letter to the church at Ephesus, um, I've, I've entitled this message Abandoning Love, which sort of is a kind of a downer of a title. But uh, um, as I got into this, I realized I, I don't think, especially with the limitations of COVID, I don't think we're going to do this in, in, in one weekend. So next week will be the... the um, 
second part, which I promise you is full of encouragement and hope. Well, the letters of the two uh, of the churches from chapter two and three of Revelation, if you will, are in, are really entirely unique in that it is, uh, I believe, the one place in the New Testament where the Lord Jesus Christ speaks directly to the church. And uh, as we know, Revelation begins with uh, a vision that the Apostle John is given while in exile on the island of Patmos. It's an island about 60 miles off the coast of Ephesus, actually. The letters all contain a roughly consistent uh, structure to them. They're written to seven specific churches in the region of Asia, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. If you, uh, uh, it is an interesting thing to Google, where are the seven churches? Um, I found several really fascinating articles. Uh, one where a, a, a guy took a journey out there and he wanted to see where they all were. Uh, it took him about three, he said they were uh, about three hours from one another, so you could do it in a day. And uh, so it just reinforces the fact these are, these are letters to specific congregations, right? They're, they're not just uh, imagery. They are, they are uh, first intended to an active congregation. And in fact, it's interesting, the writings of uh, early church fathers show some comments, these are very early church fathers, uh, that the Ephesian church actually responds quite well to the corrective given in this letter. And the character and life of the church is changed. So no doubt... Uh, these are these are real issues and real congregations. Um, but for us, these letters also highlight problems that really are perennially issues and appear in the church throughout the ages. We should also not be surprised that any number of these issues communicated to these various churches could appear in one church, perhaps over various seasons in the life of the church, we would see any number or all of these things. So I believe the real benefit for us will be found to the extent we're able to receive these letters as written to us. In other words, we read these letters, this letter to the church at Ephesus, and consider it to the church at Hollister. Well, join with me in reading Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, 
and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we just uh, come before you in awe of your word. Father, we pray that through your spirit, you would give us enlightenment that we might understand what this letter means to the church. Father, and where it is applicable, may we take it to heart. We pray for your continued work in our church, Father God. We thank you for the grace and the mercy with which we meet and enjoy fellowship and stand in your presence. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, it might be handy to begin by making sure we understand all the characters that are employed in this letter. And I guess we have to begin with the author. And as mentioned, we understand that, that uh, Jesus is the author directly of this letter, speaking to John. Through vivid imagery, the author of these letters is made clear. Picture these words from chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So the imagery vividly portrays the glory and majesty of our risen Lord. The mood is set for a message of eternal importance and carries the weight of our Creator God's power and authority. Then in the opening line of chapter 2, Jesus is described in two particular ways. 
him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So what are the seven stars and what are the seven golden lampstands? Fortunately, Revelation 1.20 is very helpful. It says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, the angels, we are told, the seven stars in his right hand, we are told, the angels we are told are the angels of the seven churches. Pardon me. So when we first think of angels, we think of um, what, what is prominently used by the word throughout the book of Revelation as heavenly beings. But in this case, it seems clear that uh, angels is more the, the um, basic understanding of the word, which is essentially messengers, and by implication, those who bring the word of God. Most scholars have agreed these are leaders or elders in the church. And it really is consistent with the text. When we look at uh, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So he's clearly speaking to someone within the church that is, that is working uh, and striving for the life of the church. The imagery of being in the Lord's right hand reflects these leaders are within his power and under his authority. And then it says the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. They are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And the imagery that Jesus walks among the golden lampstands tells us Jesus is always present among his church, then, now, and through the ages. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 28, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These images should both humble us, comfort us, and steal our hearts for the days ahead. They remind us Jesus is now and always Lord of the church. We are never without his presence, power, and authority. Well, our next character is the scribe, John the Apostle. John wrote Revelation around 95 AD and probably within 10 years of completing uh, his gospel account and uh, the epistles 1, 2, and 3. So how does John find himself exiled on the island of Patmos off the coast of Ephesus? 
Testimony of the early church tells us the Apostle John spent the last decades of his life at Ephesus, from which he likely wrote the three epistles, in which he refers to himself as the elder. He most likely found himself at odds with the surrounding culture of pagan worship. The city's most prominent landmark was the Temple of Artemis, the center of worship of the goddess Diana, where cult prostitution and rampant immorality were deeply ingrained in the culture and local religious life. John would also have been in conflict with the cult of emperor worship dominant throughout the empire and the source of increased friction and persecution of the church. And of course, this persecution would only increase um, in severity and regularity as time went on leading up to the um, reign of Emperor Diocletian in the late third and early fourth century where um, the most uh, uh, horrific stories can be found. John also, um, well, he found himself, as I said, exiled about 60, 60 miles off the coast of Ephesus, and it was the church he pastored. And, interestingly enough, the first church that he spoke to in this letter. John receives in the Spirit direction to write. Revelation 1, 9 says... I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So who was this church, Ephesus? We know the letter. It's one of the church's favorites. Um, we spent a couple years in it almost, um, enjoying the preaching of, of uh, Pastor Ron and, and carrying us through. But the church itself, perhaps no church in history, has had a richer heritage as the congregation at Ephesus. Think about it. The gospel was introduced to that city by Paul's close friends and partners in ministry, Priscilla and Aquila. Acts 18 records after this, Paul stayed many days longer than took, and, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, they had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Well, they were soon joined by the eloquent preacher and powerful debater, Apollos. Acts 18.24 records, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, 
But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos laid the groundwork for Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Acts 20 records that Paul spent three years working there in Ephesus. He taught the elders the essential principles of church leadership. His protege, Timothy, served as pastor of the church at Ephesus, Onesiphorus, and Tychicus. Two more of Paul's fellow laborers also ministered at Ephesus. And as noted, according to testimony from the early church, the Apostle John spent the last decades of his life at Ephesus, from which he likely wrote his three letters. We have this beautiful picture of the tender, loving relationship between the church and the Apostle Paul recorded in Acts 20, where Paul commends the early church after calling the elders together, commending them to God and to the gospel. He knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. At the time of the letter of Revelation, four decades had passed since the founding of the church. Paul was gone, probably most of the original congregation. Not only had there been much changed in the physical makeup of the church, the character and heart of the church as well, as we shall see, had changed as well. Well, knowing the characters, Jesus speaks to the church with a commendation or a series of commendations. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for a namesake, and you have not grown weary. So here the Lord acknowledges that the church shows no small amount of effort but it is somewhat unclear as to whether he is praising the congregation or simply acknowledging they're behaving as they are expected to behave. Matthew 23, 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The question is perhaps not whether much of their devotion is good, but whether they have forgotten the main thing. Well, what are these four commendations? He starts with, I know your works. This word works can mean more generically occupation or deeds or labor. It's sort of the, the day-to-day responsibilities that you're taking care of things. Jesus is saying, I see your labor. I see you are engaged in the work of the church. He sees their effort and their work. 
But is that necessarily a positive? It depends, doesn't it? It depends what the work and labor is directed towards and under what motivation. Paul told the Corinthians to examine yourselves to see, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So Paul recommends personal self-examination. It's not appropriate for the church to engage in regular self-examination. The context of Paul's comment is basically this. If Jesus Christ is in the believers in Corinth, if Jesus Christ is in Paul, then it will be evident. And applied here in the Ephesian church, I think you can say the real test for the church is not their labor, it is in the fruit of their labor. Well, the second Jesus mentions is your toil. Toil, you could say, is labor with trouble and weariness. I know your pain, the Lord tells the church. What he describes is not just diligent work, but a willingness to struggle through very difficult circumstances, even sorrow or grief. He says, and I know your patient endurance. And this is not simple patience like waiting for your daughter to try on blouse after blouse after blouse at Target. This is patient endurance, waiting, trusting in the final outcome. The church at Ephesus was committed to the long haul. There is a steadfastness, a willingness to endure difficulty without giving up. One New Testament commentator noted that it is the characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. And then he says, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. By saying they cannot bear with them is to say they do not tolerate them. Or looked at from another angle, to bear something is to carry it, to uphold it, to support it. The Ephesians would have none of that. They tested those who called themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Now, we've got to be clear, this isn't uh, preferential squabbles over use of the benevolence fund or the uh, building fund or even church governance. This is confronting a false teacher claiming to be God's own messenger and interpreter of the gospel message to the church. Well, how did they test these false apostles? It says they tested them and found them to be false. Think of the challenge. This isn't like today where I have a dozen translations on this thing and dozens more commentaries. We have 2,000 years of church history and scholarship. 
to gird us up. This is the church at the very beginning. And this church was at the center of the pagan world. A tiny group of believers in a little understood sect. The temple to the goddess Artemis in Ephesus is among the seven wonders of the ancient world and was visited by most of the known pagan world. It was not only at the crossroads for all the major commercial trade routes of Asia Minor, it was the crossroads for every itinerant preacher peddling the latest pagan Jewish Christian hybrid machination. Christian heresies such as Gnosticism and Antinomianism are in full flower. So how did they test these false apostles? They tested with the word of God. They knew their Bibles. For 40 years, they had received the letters from the New Testament authors. They had the letters to the Philippians, Colossians, Titus, Timothy, and more. They had the gospel records of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They didn't know it, but they actually lived to see the closing of the canon. With John's book of Revelation, God's written revelation to his church was complete. It lacked nothing. Well, then Jesus says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. It was into this hostile world of pagan sensuality, Roman brutality, and general spiritual darkness of the world the Ephesian church was birthed, and for 40 years they had soldiered on. And remember how Paul sought to encourage the church at Ephesus toward the end of his letter, Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He reminded them they were involved in a spiritual battle of cosmic proportions. And it has not gone unnoticed. Jesus says to the church, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. And clearly they haven't. They have worked. They have toiled as a church. They have endured through persecution, difficulty, and pushed back consistently against the pressures of their culture, false teachers, and spiritual compromise. And they have done so for the sake of Christ. And yet, verse 4, Jesus gives them a concern. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had it first. I can only imagine what it was like to receive that letter and uh, the excitement, not only uh, being delivered from messengers of John from the island, hearing from their pastor, but to read those, that first letter that was written specifically to their church from the Lord Jesus Christ, to hear his words of commendation and then to come to verse four. But you have left 
the love you had at first. I can only imagine people saying, what did we miss? We have been working, we have been toiling, we have been patient, we have been enduring. What have we missed? Well, we're going to finish there for today. I apologize, but I promise you next week we'll be encouraging and strengthening. But some thoughts for you. Keep in mind this verse 4, this is, this is the heart of Jesus' message to Ephesus. Read and meditate it over the week. Ask yourself, what does it mean to abandon something? And why would you abandon something? What is the love you had at first? It is interesting. Um, I had four commentaries on Revelation, just to skim through, make sure I wasn't missing something. And in regards to this verse, the love you had at first, I can tell you all four of them had a different opinion. Now, that doesn't mean they were in conflict with one another. But I wonder if they were all right. And uh, as I said, I've been, I've been uh, chewing on this text for the last few months. I encourage you to take the next week, spend some time in it. Um, it, it, is, uh, it is something I think the Lord intends us to spend time with. It isn't a one-time read. Got it, let's move on. This is a message for the church, and I think it's, a, it's an important one. Well, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you even that sometimes it is difficult, Father, to hear. Sometimes it is difficult to understand. But Father, I think you intend that to be so that we would spend time. We would slow down. We would consider its implications and how you would apply it to our lives. Thank you, Father God, that in the midst of a world that is desperately, desperately seeking for answers that it cannot find, that, Father, all things are answered in Jesus Christ. Bring us back next week, Father God, that we might be encouraged Father, to walk closer with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.